If you've got your Bible open to John 14, I'm going to ask you to go up a couple more pages to John chapter 17. And we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at verses 24, 25, and 26 this morning. I'm hoping to get through this whole sermon. If I don't, I will finish it next week in the providence of God. But the title of my sermon is actually the entire sermon in a sentence. It's what I I really want you to take from this in this conclusion of Jesus Christ's prayer in John 17, which you need to realize that Jesus prays in John 17 as he concludes this, he prays, now watch this, that his desire and his glory would be lovingly lavished on us. So with that in mind, let me read these closing verses where God, Jesus Christ, in the Kedron Valley concludes his prayer. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now watch this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And then Jesus concludes with, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want to get you to just slow down for a minute and consider a topic that makes us a lot uncomfortable. And that topic is death. You see, Christians, many of you in this room would claim to be a Christian. Many of you would say that you know Jesus. And I don't know if you notice this, but true Christians, they look at death differently. Have you ever thought about this? For the Christian, death is not an enemy. A couple of Sundays ago, I had the great joy and pride of listening to Matt Leahy as he preached at Living Water Baptist Church on a Wednesday night, and he expounded on Matthew chapter 16, where he spoke about death as having lost its sting and its power. And the reason for that is because Christ, death is, sorry, when we're in Christ, death is simply a passage, a door from this life to eternity. Because remember what he says, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the name of Jesus Christ. I also want you to know for Christians, they die differently. I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, ESPN blew up because one of the reporters was reporting on a famous coach whose wife was killed by a driver who was texting, and it made all the news across the world. And in his tribute for his wife, he said, many ask me how I am doing since I lost my wife. But I am here today to tell you, I didn't lose my wife. I know exactly where she is. And while I miss her and mourn her and long for her, I do not want her back, for she is with Jesus Christ. Her faith is sight, and the wonder and worship she experiencing now and for eternity, I'd never ask to be cut away from her. And that was controversial because in that statement he said, I don't know what you think of religion or Christianity, But he said, Christians die better than anybody else. But not only that, Christians deal with death personally different. I've been in the presence of death more than I care to admit as a pastor who's been 
a pastor longer than half his life. I've had the horror of awakening a young lady in the middle of the night with my wife to tell her that her mother was tragically killed in an accident. I've held an eight-day-old baby as that baby breathed his last breath. And I've held the hand of a 95-year-old man as I hummed amazing grace and watched him enter into glory. I've seen how the world tries to deal with death, the horror of it, the finality of it, the inevitability of it. But then I was a man, I was with a man in his 40s with two teenage sons. He was dying of cancer. He was a strong believer in Jesus, a man who had great faith. And I was barely, I was in my late 20s, I was 29, I don't think I was quite 30, when he called me to his hospice room. There was no more treatment for him, there was no more surgeries, they were simply making him comfortable. And I got a call to go see him, and I didn't know why. And to be honest, probably because of my upbringing as a very legalistic young man, I thought I was in trouble. I didn't know what I would say. To be honest, I knew his boys. They were in my youth group. I led his wife in the choir, and his name was Stephen Dennis. Stephen called me into his room that day for several reasons. Now... I know that I wasn't in trouble, but I want you to remember he was dying, and he had only known me for two years. Stephen asked me to sing for him. I sang Amazing Grace. I sang it as well with my soul. Then he asked me to sing a song that I didn't know all the words of, so I sang the one verse I knew about five times. He asked me to read scripture for him. And his desire was to read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I remember the stillness of the room as I read to him and just could hear the machinery that was beeping and clicking while I read. And then he said he needed to tell me some things. And the truth is I can't tell you most of it because he had actually said that they were for my ears only. And these are words that I have cherished for over 20 years. But they were words of wisdom and advice. They were words of challenge, and quite frankly, they were words spoken to me that day that, well, they changed my life and the trajectory of it. And then Stephen called me over to his bedside, and he said the, reason, the real reason he had called me there was he had called me to pray for me. He laid his weak hands on my head, and he prayed with that weak voice. And only a few weeks later, Stephen died. And I can tell you, Calvary, as my family, from the very inner crevices of my heart, having someone who was dying, when I thought I should be the one comforting, I thought I, as a young pastor, should be the one praying, I thought I was the one who was supposed to be strong, how much do you think it changed my life to have Stephen Dennis in his weakness as he faced death, as he had said goodbye to two teenage sons and goodbye to his wife, lay his hands on me and pray for me. But Christians don't only look at death differently, they don't only die differently, they don't only deal with death differently, Christians live differently. Or rather, shouldn't they? My encounters with death as a pastor have changed me. But without a doubt, it is my encounter with Jesus Christ that has changed me more than I can ever explain. 
And friends, we are here, it's the end of John 17, and we're looking at these final three verses of Jesus' magnificent prayer of consecration. He is acting not only as priest, but as high priest, who is about to lay down his life once for all, for all sin, for all time, for all of humanity. That is, if you know him. And even as we start this morning, I want to ask, do you? Do you know Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior? Jesus, has Jesus changed your view of death? Has Jesus changed the way you deal with death? Has Jesus changed the way you personally live and die? You see, this is what separates those who trust God and those who trust in themselves. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? When we think about words like death and pain and disaster... Even things for most of us like sudden change. These are the places where we discover what or rather who we believe and trust in. And that is when all the excuses and all the delusions are swept away. And depending on how you respond, when you encounter death or pain or disaster or sudden change, it will either drive you to God or it will drive you from God. And even that is a process because the question will always remain, what will you do? Will you be honest? And I want you to have that image of death as we come to the end of Jesus' prayer and think about how we got here This prayer is actually the end of something that started back in John chapter 13 all the way through 16. We've been making our way, as you would, Jesus is leading them out to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's already instituted the Lord's table, something we're going to celebrate. But remember, I've said it many, many times. They are tired. They're weary. They're having the worst crisis of faith in their entire lives. Judas has left them. Thomas has doubted. Chris just read it. Peter has bragged, and they've all been ravished with anxiety and questions. And don't forget, Jesus has prayed to God as son and also as co-equal with God in verses 1 to 5. Jesus has prayed as Lord and leader of these 11 tired, weary, confused disciples. And amazingly, in verses 20 to 26, before any of us were even born, at his most vulnerable moment, Jesus prays for us. When he was weak, when he was vulnerable, when he was about to go and face things that you and I, by God's grace, will never face, when you would sometimes think, maybe I should be strong, I should be the one, Jesus says, no, 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 let me. And when you've experienced the weakness of God praying over you, it changes your life. Jesus stops and prays. Hours from betrayal and abandonment, hours from arrest and false accusation, hours from torture and being made fun of and bullied, hours from slaps in the face along with people spitting in his face, likely people he's healed. Yes, Jesus was at his weakest. And then he prays. And can I be honest with you this morning, Calvary, I wish I could help you truly grasp and cling to the idea of what it means for Jesus to pray. You see, I think it's become cliche in our church and the churches of St. John's and across our country. We do often ask each other to pray, but why do we do it? 
Why do we do this? I got asked multiple times. I asked people multiple times to pray for me. Well, Steve, will you pray for me? Why do we do that? Have you ever wondered, by the way, why we pray in Jesus' name? The reason we pray in Jesus' name is because Jesus prays. And so we address our prayers to the one who prays for us. He is the one who intercedes for us. He's the one who is our advocate. You don't, need, um, uh, you don't need me to pray for you. You don't need anybody else. Jesus prays. And so I ask you to think about this as I tell you about the last three weeks I've been away. And I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart that you, my church, are so loving and sacrificial to allow me to travel the way I do. Now, I will tell you the one thing I've learned By God's grace, I am never going to travel for my wife for 21 days ever again. (laughs) You are the family of God here at Calvary. And I noticed this morning, I was saying to Matt, there are multiple people here from Kilbride Community Church. There are multiple people here from downtown Community Church. And we're all going to gather and we're going to celebrate and remember and worship the Lord And we're going to, Lord willing, be changed by the table of the Lord. But as I do this, as I've now, Lord willing, preached your interest about death and how we look at this verse, I bring you greetings, and I'm going somewhere with this, from Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia, from Willington Community Church in uh, Burnaby, British Columbia, and Cloverdale Baptist Church in the Surrey-Cloverdale area of British Columbia. I bring you greetings from Jonathan Tipper and his church, Greenlee Baptist in North Carolina. Matt and I bring you greetings from Living Water Baptist Church and Rock Springs Baptist Church in South Carolina. We bring you greetings from Lakeside Baptist Church in Myrtle Beach, along with 78 churches of the Waccamaw Baptist Association that just two weeks ago, or less than a week ago, voted unanimously all 78 churches to adopt Calvary Baptist Church and Mile One Mission as their missions partner in Canada. I bring you greetings from literally hundreds of believers from all around the world from the the, the, uh, Gospel Coalition Conference who are now aware that Calvary Baptist and KCC and DCC and NCC exist and many of them are praying for us and will pray for us. I cannot tell you the amount of ups and downs, both here at home and from those of us who traveled, because there are many. But as Match preached from Matthew 16, that the gates of hell can't prevail against the gospel of Jesus. Amen? All right. I want to tell you about faceless names who are moved of God to help us here in St. John's. I don't know if you realize it, but Matt lost any spot to rent in Kilbride when we were just ready to launch the church into 52 Sundays. The city of St. John's changed a policy that bans any religious groups from holding worship services in any city facility. So just as he put his dates in, the city got back to us and said, you can't. We prayed, and a little space became available, about 1,200 square feet. For those of you that have been a part of Calvary for a while, that should sound familiar. Because that's just a little bit bigger than the sanctuary we had at 415 Camp Mount Road. $1,900 a month is the rent. Plus renovations. It's going to cost twenty-five dollars to $30,000. What are we going to do? I told Matt to write to a church in the U.S. that we've got a good relationship with. And 
I thought for sure they'd help us. I didn't think they'd give us all the money, but within 24 hours, Matt got an email saying politely, we love you and thank you, but we've diverted a lot of money, and so we don't have any. Matt looked at me, and I looked at him and said, what are we going to do? It was on a Thursday night in Vancouver. I was driving him to the airport so he could go to North Carolina. I said, Matt, this is God's work. Let's continue to pray. It took me 40 minutes to drop him off at the airport and drive back to our Airbnb. And in that 40-minute span, I got a text from Matt saying that he had gotten an email from a faceless, nameless pastor in Texas, Cross Timbers Baptist Church. We've never met him. He saw a video that Matt was a part of, wrote Matt and said, hey, our church would like to help you. Do you have any projects? Matt said, what should I do? I went, you have to ask. I'll tell you what you do. You get on that phone and you start sending back our needs. So I told him, he said, you wait, really say it? I said, you tell him we need 25 to 30,000 bucks. So he did. We never heard anything for days. That Sunday night, I flew through the night, um, got into uh, Myrtle Beach, met up with Matthew, and he had heard on that Tuesday from this man, hey, listen, we'd love to help you. We don't know if we can help you like that, and we don't know how long it will be, but we're willing to help. Is that okay? And again, Matt said, what do I say? And I'm like, listen, man, this guy owes us nothing. You just to be thankful, and you tell him that we love him, and we're thankful, and whatever he can do, he can do. That next Thursday, so seven days later, Matt and I are in a big bus with several other pastors driving four and a half hours up the state of South Carolina to meet with this church called Rock Springs Baptist Church. When Matthew gets a text from this man, Jonathan Mansour, of Cross Timbers Baptist Church in the state of Texas that we have never met, informing him that they had cut a check and were sending us $20,000 American to pay for the rent for an entire year so Kilbride Community Church can have a permanent church for at least a year. Yeah. I tell you all this so you can understand as I'm bringing us to the end of this prayer and bringing us to the table of the Lord, this is but one of a thousand stories that we could tell you of ups and downs. I can't tell you the amount of, of fatigue I have felt, the amount of doubt the amount of desire to be with my wife and my family, missing my church, yet watching with pride in Vancouver as David preached to you, watching with a confidence as Steve preached to you, watching and knowing that you were loved for and cared for, knowing that God is working. I have felt anxiety, confusion, questions, euphoria, confidence, cowardice, and it all took my mind back to the day that Stephen Dennis prayed over me, dying of cancer at his weakest, when I thought I was supposed to be strong, to this time in the Kedron Valley when Jesus Christ was the weakest he's ever been as a human being. Hours from this, he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood as the weight of sin and the punishment for sin was coming upon him. And he was about to go and face death and sin and hell itself for humanity. And yet he takes the time to pray for us. Notice, if you will, very quickly, number one, Jesus' desire for us to be with him. 
I want you to see that this morning. Jesus' desire for us to be with him. Look at what he says. Father, I desire that they also. Now remember, he's praying for his entire church now. That they also. What does he say? Whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And this is why I had Chris read John chapter 14. Jesus doesn't just want us. He desires us. He longs for us to be with him. Look at the words again. I desire. Father. He addresses God as Father. I desire that they would be with me. But what makes this prayer any different from ours? Why am I trying so hard to, 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 to talk at your heart and your mind so you get and understand the weight of this? I mean, we say things like this. I said for 21 days that I desired to be with Debbie, told her multiple times a day, missed my grandchildren, missed my children, longed for videos and pictures that Debbie would send me. I longed for you guys. I called repeatedly to ask people, how is this one doing? How is that one doing? Texted many of you. How is Jesus' desire and prayer any different than ours? Well, for starters, notice this, Jesus doesn't make requests. He makes revelations. Jesus doesn't have to pray, but friends, Jesus does. Do you remember what he said back at an empty at a, at a tomb? Sorry, not an empty tomb, but a tomb with a stone in front of it that held the body of Lazarus back in John chapter 11? Remember these words? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, that's that he wept, came to the tomb. And what was it? It was a cave and a stone lay up against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha. And the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Does all this sound familiar to you? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Now watch what he says. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't pray because I have to. I know you hear me. We're God. I am praying for the benefit of humanity to hear me. And so I want you to be encouraged today because when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you know that a lot of scholars believe the reason Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, is because Jesus Christ is so powerful. Had he said, just come out, all of the dead would have raised from the, back to life. That's the kind of power he has. He actually had to say his name so only Lazarus was the one that responded. This is the one who prays over you and I. When you and I think we need to be strong and we need to have the answers and we need to know what to do and we look at our Savior who can sometimes, let's be honest, feel a million miles away and yet he is here. Jesus doesn't pray this to convince God. Jesus doesn't pray wondering, will God answer? Think about where Jesus is today, right now. He is seated at the right hand of God. Never, never forget Revelation chapter 4 and 5. What does it tell us? That in the throne room of heaven, there is an eternal worship service happening with 24 elders and all of the myriad of hosts and all of the the innumerable number of people that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And it says, they sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And thou art worthy. And when John weeps and feels discouraged, the Lamb of God steps up and says, I'm the one. This is who prays for you. 
You see, we make supplications, Jesus makes declarations. We pray confession, Jesus praises righteousness. We pay petitions, Jesus prays proclamations. Jesus doesn't pray like a child pleading and hoping to a father. Jesus prays as a Savior and Lord, announcing reality and assurance. And I want you to know, as weak as you might feel you are this morning, as sinful as you might feel you are, struggling with besetting sin, whatever you are dealing with, Jesus Jesus says, you're mine, I'm your Savior, and I'm your Lord, and I want you to be with me. But think about that. Jesus promised that we would be with him. See, that's again why I had Chris read John 14. But let me ask you something. Would we want to be with Jesus in this current state you're in? Who? I mean, think about it. Jesus knows everything about us, right? Every word, every thought, every deed. You can't hide from him. Can't keep anything from him. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit. You know why? Because I know I try, but I also know I fail a lot. I'm not perfect. There's all kinds of things I'm embarrassed by. But this prayer in John 17, this prayer has and means something. The great Presbyterian says, J.M. Boyce says, I said that the only comfort in death is to know that we will soon be with Jesus. But while it is true that this is a great, well, that this is the great and only ultimate comfort, I am not sure that this statement is entirely true. And why? For there is at least one other fact that is comforting. The additional fact is that we will not only be with Jesus, we will also be like Jesus. John writes in his first letter, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Kent Hughes wraps this verse up so well. He says, Jesus prayed that one day we would be with him in heaven and behold his glory. And one day that is indeed going to happen. And when it does, he's going to say, welcome home. We'll arrive at the home we have always longed for, and we will find that we really have never wanted anything else. Christ's prayer asks literally that we will keep on beholding his glory and his prayer will be answered. We will constantly behold his face and will become like him. And it's not only that he just desires his presence with us, but notice as well in verse 24, Jesus desires us to see his glory. Look at what he says. That the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, I want them to see that glory. Jesus wants us to see his glory, but not only that, he wants us to share in that glory. And if you want to know what sin has done, look no further than glory. Because let's be honest, I agree with Richard Phillips who said the tragedy of mankind is not that we seek glory, the tragedy, the rather the tragedy is that we swallow the false glory of sin. We embrace the tainted glory of the flesh and we revel in the vain glory of the praise of men. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus came to redeem us to partake in his true glory. That gives us life. Jesus prayed to the Father for his people. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me. So the question is... How do we know God's glory, and then how do we share in it? And the answer is in verses 25 and 26. Because then Jesus desires for us to know him in his love and to make him in his love known. 
Jesus concludes with the greatest set of our greatest attribute that we can think of. Did you see it? To know him and to know his love. But notice, Jesus prays in declaration. It's a knowledge that grows and a love that grows. One man has said, to know God is to participate in his love, and to receive his love is to share with his person. The love that motivates the Christian life, rules the life of the church, and inspires its ministry in the world. It's the essential inward love of the Godhead, the love with which the Father eternally loves the Son. So I started by saying, Christians, remember, look at, approach, and deal with death differently. Then I must make sense, or then it must make sense that we live differently, right? You see, love is the most important. Love is the most eternal attribute. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 13. We read it a lot at weddings, right? The love chapter. It bothers me to death that we read it at weddings because it was never written for a wedding. It was written for a church. It's the way a church is supposed to love. But you notice, it's not love defined by the world or the culture or worse again, Satan. Because let's be honest, how did it work out for Adam and Eve? when they decided to define love. You see, the world defines love as agreeing with me, affirmation, letting live and let live. To love is to let everyone do whatever they want to do. We just finished reading the book of Judges. How did that work out? But what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is so much different. Because having spoken about love and having come to the end where he looks at the Christian life under the categories of three major categories, right? Faith, hope, and love. But he says faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest is love. But it's not a soft love, a wishy-washy love. Again, J.M. Boyce wants us to catch something. He says, I think this was in Paul's mind as he wrote those important words on death that are recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5. Now, this is why I don't like the fact that our Bibles have verse and chapter breaks, because he said there's an unfortunate chapter break in the passage. And so he says, if you begin reading in verse 15 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, and you read all the way to verse 4 of chapter 5, you'll get a different feel. Paul writes, he says, all this is for your benefit. What? So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. There's the glory aspect. Therefore, because of that, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now listen, I know for some of the seniors here, you can relate to this. My father-in-law is 90 years old. He longs to, quite frankly, to die in a very good way. He understands this. But young people, you need to realize that if you get these verses, this will fuel your passion, your joy, your holiness, your hunger for truth, your mission, your understanding of unity and love if you live this way in your youth. Don't cling to life as if this is ultimate. It's not. This is preparation for real life that comes for eternity. 
He says, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. He's basically using this allegory of putting on clothes to say, this is what it means to take off this earthly life and put on my spiritual life. He goes, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. But what does he say? He goes, this is the reason I don't complain. This is why I don't bemoan and I don't want to whine and complain. Rather, he looks beyond it. He sees something bigger. It's not that we enjoy suffering. It's not that we enjoy setbacks, but we realize that none of this owns me. So you don't have to be afraid anymore. It amazes me how many people in the church are afraid of life. And you try to cling to it. When eternal life is offered to you. Again, what was it C.S. Lewis said? We are far too easily pleased. We're ready to go out there and make mud pies in a puddle when Jesus is offering us a vacation at the beach. Are you letting your job, your education, your car, your, your cottage, your cabin, depending on where you're from? Are you letting your home or the, the, the thoughts and fantasies of owning a home, are you, are you letting marriage or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, are you finding your identity in ministry? Are you finding your identity in your kids or your grandkids? None of that will satisfy you. You know how I know? I've tried. Young people, I wish I could take you back. I know what it is to be like Abraham and kind of negotiate with God. I know what it is to go, God, if I could just have my license, then you can come back. Oh, Lord, if I could just have a girlfriend, then you can come back. If I can just get married, then you can come back. If I could just have a kid, then you can come back. And now I feel more and more, every day older I get, the more like Solomon I get. And go, you know what? I chased after stuff when all I ever needed was Jesus. I'm not trying to say to you, do as I say, not as I did. I'm trying to tell you, there's a better way to live. There's a more fulfilling way to live. So then this growing knowledge of God through Jesus, which leads to love. Notice, if this is true, then if you will eventually be with Jesus, and if you are a Christian, then here's the practical application. Don't you want to spend time with him now? You do this through your own personal Bible study and prayer. We do this in community. We do this at church. We do this in small groups. We do this in coffee shops when we disciple each other. What would you think of a couple? And we've got lots of young couples here, and many of you are dating. What would you say about a couple who said they want to get married, but don't think they need to spend any time together before marriage? They say, oh, when we, we will be together a lot after we are married. We have other things we want to do now. We would think that a marriage like that would be hardly promising, wouldn't it? And we would be right. For if a couple is going to spend their lives together, they should rightly want to get to know each other better, and even before the marriage ceremony. In the same way, we should want to get to know Jesus better if we are indeed looking forward to being together with Him in heaven every day. It's, see, it's what breaks my heart is I think a lot of Christians saying they want to go to heaven really don't. We're like the rich young ruler. We want to live forever, but in this life. See, if you have a sin that you love, let me ask you, why do you want to go to heaven then? Because there's no sin in heaven. And that sin you love isn't there. What makes heaven great is Jesus. In fact, if you want to know something, hell is where you get your own way for eternity. 
and you experience how that pays off. It's eternity without God for you to just live your life your way. Trust me when I tell you, that's hell. Heaven is to be with Christ. See, the second application then is our moral conduct. Because notice, I've quoted, and I know this is one of David's favorite verses in 1 John chapter 3, that when we behold him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But then you know what he says in verse 2? Everyone who has this open him purifies himself just as he is pure. Friends, Jesus prays for us to have a love that trusts and acts. When we don't love each other, when we don't love the lost, when we don't live out those one another commands, and we find all throughout the New Testament, we're actually admitting that in that moment, we're back to glory grabbing. It's a temporary lack of trust in Jesus' love for us. You see, there can only be two basic loves. The love of God unto the forgetfulness of self, and the love of self unto the forgetfulness of God. Augustine said that. You should read his life. He knows what he's talking about. Becoming your authentic self doesn't make you whole. Following an authentic Savior does. Instead of measuring church by its attendance and budget, let's assess our churches by the quality of community that disciples people to love well, a culture that equips individuals to have a first-hand life with God and a commitment to work for healing in all areas of life in the way of Jesus. It absolutely amazes me how often we think that the love of Jesus and the love of his church as it relates to me. In other words, why doesn't Jesus love me? But what we mean is, according to my definition, my desires, my goals, my agenda, my priorities. So is it any wonder that is how we define the love we are called to have towards each other? So there's too many Christians in this city always define love or the church in terms of, the church didn't love me. Folks didn't affirm me. They didn't chase me. They didn't approve and validate my agenda. Or we think in terms of a partnership and not family. When they love me, then I'll love them. All of us here in this room should love the lost, sacrificially, and at great cost to us. But we will never truly experience the love of Jesus that he prays here if we only think in terms of, yes, you do that for me, and then I'll do it for you. You want to be a great testimony to this city? Is when nobody loves you and yet you love them. You want to fascinate the culture? Is when you're being friendly, when it doesn't look like anybody's being friendly to you. Remember what I said at the beginning? Stephen Dennis changed my life. He's dying. He's weak. He's alone. He's about to lose his wife and his children from an earthly perspective. And yet he called me into his room, sang with me, prayed over me, encouraged me. That's the gospel. You see, becoming a part of a strong and loving Christian community is such a blessing. But be sure you're getting to know God who provides the grace by his spirit. Because if not, you'll be in danger of simply learning the community's style and following a set of rules. Cults grow like that, by the way. It's one thing to be grateful. It's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. And so remember this. 
We see the preeminence of love readily if we look at it in reference to the other marks of the church. So remember, I've said Jesus has prayed for joy, holiness, truthfulness, mission, unity, and now love. But what do you have if you take and subtract love from joy? You have hedonism, the pursuit of your own pleasure. What happens if you subtract love from holiness? What do you get? Self-righteousness. What do you do if you take love from truth? You have a bitter orthodoxy that loves to argue and fight but never cares. What happens if you take love from mission? You have imperialism and colonialism. That's what you get. What happens if you take love from unity? You'll have tyranny. And what happens if you take love from love? Chaos. You see, we can have joy because we rejoice in God and what he has so overwhelmingly done does for us. We can have holiness because we know we'll see him one day and be like him. We can have truth because we love the word of God. We can be on mission because we've got a message from the word of God to tell the world. We can be unified because by love we discern that. And finally, we can have love because Jesus is love in action. Jesus prays for his glorification and then declares he'll share it with us. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection and provision and mission and then promises to protect and provide and commission. And so, as we come to this table of the Lord, what will you do now for God is a bad question. Notice Jesus doesn't simply want us to be with him. He desires it. Your Bible is filled with what happens when you don't embrace that desire. Adam and Eve hid. Lot ran away. Sarah laughed. Hezekiah wouldn't pray. Abraham tried to bargain. And in Judges, they tried to manipulate. And Joshua was told it wouldn't help. But David confessed and repented in prayer. Isaiah worshiped in prayer. Paul brought his anxieties to prayer. Job brought his confusion and his questions in prayer. And our great sin is no match for his great redemption. Jesus desires us to be with him and then gives us his spirit to be with us now. Jesus desires us to see his glory and then promises to share it with us. Jesus desires to know him and most importantly his love, the pure, honest, all-powerful, righteous love of God. Jesus prayed that we be joyful and holy and truthful and missional and unified and loving people, his people. And that means that selfishness and pride can stop. And excuses and victimology can stop. Blaming our sin and others and calling them mistakes will stop. Demands for others to love us before we ever love them stops. We sacrifice. We rest. We fight. Oh, yes, we fight, but we fight with hope and with grace. So you're not too lost that God can't find you. You're not too dirty that God can't cleanse you. You're not too broken that God can't fix you. And you're not too hurt that God can't heal you. You're not too far gone that God can't reach you. And you're not too guilty that God can't forgive you. And you're not too sinful for God not to save you. And so without the cross, we would never have imagined the depth and seriousness So now we live. Friends, this is the very essence of Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Amen.